Welcome to season five of the Life Giver Podcast, a place for honest conversation and hope that will breathe life back into your military or first responder marriage. This is your host, Corey Weathers. I'm a military spouse, clinician, and advocate, and I'm bringing topics that I hear from the service community and counseling room to the podcast, where we can face the challenges of this lifestyle together. Welcome to the Life Giver Podcast. We're going to call this Late Night Life Giver. Late Night with Life Giver. Late Night with Life Giver. It's actually, what, 9.30 at night. Hey, you people out there in Radio Land listening late at Late Night with Life Giver. (laughs) If you don't know who that is, that is my husband, Matt. Welcome to the Life Giver Podcast again, Matt. It's been since last season. Thank you for joining me. You're welcome. It's, uh, It's a blast. I... Now, after after like getting into the microphone, I kind of remember I was a radio DJ in college. And oh, give I it your best shot. What, is, like what did you sound up. like? Hey, everybody out there in radio station land. Welcome to radio station WGWG 88.3 on your FM dial. That's right. Wooga, wooga. So, <laughs> <laughs> Old yeah. school 20 years yeah. ago. No, it really is 930 at night and we just finished a movie and we thought, you oh. know, why so not? Good. Why not do a podcast oh, best review movie ever? Um, so we'll see what everybody thinks about late night with Life Giver. You know what? I think they're going to like it. I think they're going to dig think so. it. I think so. I think, I think it's going to become a thing. Yeah, I think you're going to be like somebody getting ready for a funeral out in a graveyard. You're going to dig it. You're going to. That's terrible. <laughs> yeah, that's that horrible. is so terrible. That's so terrible. <laughs> no, so you got to right. lean forward just okay. a little bit. Maybe it's towards the mic. You're like a private getting a foxhole ready. You're going to dig it. Okay, that's so terrible. (laughs) Okay, sorry. (laughs) Well, we um, just finished Mr. Rogers. Oh, my goodness. um, The movie. Just, I just can't. Yeah, just. We're going to attempt to process it. Yeah. And so this is actually usually what happens between us on Saturdays. Yeah, Saturdays. (laughs) But it's 930. And so we wanted to kind of process kind of our thoughts. I mean, we cried through the whole movie. I did. I'll I'll contextualize movie watching on a Tuesday night. On a Tuesday. That's right. It's a Tuesday. Movie watching on a Tuesday night. It happens because we have two teenage boys. And um, we almost hurt them. I almost hurt them. Well, I didn't. I didn't almost hurt them. (laughs) However... Because they're going to report you to Child Protective Services. Don't report me. You guys I, in Parent Land know what I'm talking about. I We just got to the point like 7 p.m. Like the clock struck 7. And we looked at them and we said, we're, we're done, done parenting. parenting. Okay? <laughs> we are done. For the night. Go take you care are, of yourselves. For the night, we will see you on the morrow. And we love you. <laughs> oh, you're so dear to us. Leave before we hate you. Yes. Um, no, and then we done. went and watched <laughs> Mr. Yeah. Rogers. Yeah. And then felt totally guilty. Thanks, Fred. Um, so if you guys have not seen Mr. Rogers, what is it? What's it the, actually the called? Mr. Rogers with Tom Hanks. Like, Tom welcome Hanks. to my neighborhood. I don't know what it is, but you can find it on your local Apple store. Yes. So I've been wanting to watch it for a while and we were thinking about what to watch. Um, and I said, you picked the last two movies. Yeah. So I wanted to watch this one. Ever since I had seen the trailer, I was like, this is going to be a fan. It's Tom Hanks. Yeah. Slate it. Slate it. I mean, absolutely. And, you know, so we're both 42. Well, actually, I'm 42. I'm 43. She's Thank 43 because she announcing digs. announcing it. Well, she digs younger men, and that's a thing. So, <laughs> um, and, I mean, can you blame her? You're I welcome. Mean, 
I mean, we're on the radio. You're welcome that I've gifted you that with we're actually for life. Not, we're not doing this a video because you would see why she digs me because <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a handsome 42. I'm aging like a fine wine. So Real nice. Real, real nice. Clark, go out and get you something real, real nice. nice. <laughs> um, so it, uh, oh gosh, what were we talking Oh, so. Mr. Rogers. Oh, Mr. Ro um, we grew up. With Mr. Rogers, we grew up with Sesame Street. We're on the tail end of Gen X. We're on the very yeah. front end of being a millennial. We're so actually called Xennials. Really? Yeah, we're actually called Xennials because Gen X doesn't get all the technology and millennials were raised with it, but we actually adapted midstream. Oh. We were like, Ooh, I thought we were like Generation Y. No, we we're called Xennials. Oh, there you go. Yeah, we're not Generation Y. New Why? Because we already know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, I specifically, so I'll talk, uh, I'll talk about my experience. I grew up, um, uh, I can remember watching Mr. Rogers. I can remember watching Sesame street. I can, um, you know, the other day they, the boys were asking me what my favorite, uh, um, cartoons were, you know, transformers and GI Joe. And I can just remember, uh, Saturday morning cartoons, uh, I think we are on the tail end of um, a kind of just an innocence yeah. that existed with kids. And I don't know. Innocence with us as kids. Innocence. Yeah. Innocence yeah. with us as kids, you know, um, where what if I tried to get my kids to watch Mr. Rogers now and I know they're 12 and 15, they would they would look at it. Oh, as the just, word is cringy. It was cringy. It would absolutely be cringy. Yeah. They just couldn't handle it. But what I but what I saw downstairs and I mentioned to Corey while we were watching it was I honestly feel like pre-K and kindergarten and maybe first and second grade. It should almost be mandatory watching in homeroom every day. Yeah, because one of the things we're struggling with and this came up in me when we were watching the movie was how much we've been struggling with middle schoolers just being just cruel and mean. Yeah. And I can remember them being a little bit mean when I was in middle school, but you know, it's almost like kids today just don't have a context for being um, kind or loving. And uh, it just, it hurts my heart, especially when I watch like Mr. Rogers, I'm like, Oh, if we could just get back to, to that. that. Yeah. And but I also look at these kids that are unkind and that are unloving and I feel bad for them because it's almost like they don't have an example of of that probably at home. And we even talk about that with both our boys of when kids are unkind to them, we acknowledge it, we validate it, we say that it's mean and um, and yet we also try and envision cast for them and go, mm -hmm. you know, I wonder what that kid is struggling with at home mm -hmm. that makes them come to the world and be so cruel and so mean. But, you know, when you say that, I think about that, that Fred Rogers made that show for that reason, because there was so much unkindness in the world. Yeah. So it's not a new thing. Yeah. And so it it was meant to be. Um, not shocking necessarily, but it was meant to be something that stopped to make you think. And that, that's for me, what really stood out. I mean, there were so many things that stood out to me in the movie that I'm sure we'll unpack. Mm -hmm. But, um, one of the first things 
because I mean, it opens up with, and I'm, I don't think there's any, we're not going to give away any huge spoilers necessarily. I don't care if we give away spoilers. Yeah. Spoil, I'll put a spoiler alert on this. Um, if you haven't seen the movie, it's, it's Mr. Phenomenal. Rogers. It's phenomenal. But Go watch it. But, you know, for me, the first thing that stood out because it opens with Tom Hanks singing that familiar song yeah. at the beginning of, of Mr. Rogers' oh. Neighborhood. But what stood out to me was how slow and, um, his pace of the yeah. way that he would talk. And the first thing that came to my mind is we are so busy yes. in this lifestyle and we keep ourselves so busy that it almost felt unnerving mm -hmm. to hear him talk so slowly and calmly and in, and with such intentionality that it really um, stops you in your tracks and yeah. makes you pause and hang on every word and we are such, we are living such a very busy life with so, the world is so loud and the internet is so loud and multitasking, I know for me is constant that it was almost abrupt to make you stop and hang on every word. Yeah. It, I mean, the, it's not that he's pausing for some sort of dramatic thing. I mean, if you, I'm sure if we went back and actually watched um, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, it would make, I mean, we would see that. I specifically, as a helper, a caregiver, mm -hmm. remember specific instances of sitting with soldiers for an hour or two, one soldier in particular, one time after another after another, and just sitting in the silence. Mm-hmm. And not knowing what to say mm -hmm. because of what this soldier had been through. But just sitting there together. Mm -hmm. And I, in that moment, felt like, <clears throat> you know, as a caregiver, maybe I don't have enough words or the right words or am I doing something wrong? But then I looked at, I looked at, you know, Fred, I'm going to call him Fred. I looked at the way Fred approached the world and the value he placed on every moment in every relationship that was represented in the movie. Um, and I think is represented in his life really well. Uh, he placed such a value on it that he didn't try and jump over it. Like as if it was a speed bump, mm -hmm. as if that person was just in his way. And he did say one thing and he was like, you know, on the phone, he said, do you know what the most important thing in the world is to me? And Lloyd said, what? And he said, well, I'm talking to my friend Lloyd Vogel. Mm -hmm. And that, that I get to talk to that you I right get now. To talk to yeah. you right now. And that is just sitting in that moment with another human. It's incalculable what it can communicate to that person about their value and their worth. And there are so many things, there are so many messages we are all struggling with mm. about our value and our worth. And whether that comes from our spouse or our children or our parents or our job or whatever, mm -hmm. having one person that will just sit there and say, I will put aside everything, thing, everything yeah. and just be in your life. Mm. For right now, because your life is the most important thing to me. 
You know, and there was a really interesting place there where he was first meeting him and yeah. he was like, I think they said 73 minutes behind schedule oh, yeah. in, in filming the yeah. show. And yet oh. it was because he was being so present with the child that was there on the show. Yeah. And there was so many, you could feel. It was a all, make-a-wish child. Yes. And there were so many things like backing up everything yeah. from the production of the show to um, to this interview that he's supposed to do with Lloyd yeah. and who's there. If you haven't seen the movie, he He's there to do a magazine article. Yeah. It's a part of the trailer as well um, to do an article on him. And yet when he shows up to do the interview, he's already 73 minutes behind schedule yeah. because he's being so intentional yeah. with this child. And you can feel the tension that that causes. Right. Um, and I, I wish that there was, there's a fabulous documentary if you've not seen it on oh, yeah. Mr. Rogers, totally worth watching as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that I know that, I wrestle with is feeling that tension of when you choose intentionality of being with somebody, you know, in that moment that there's always something that feels like there's something you're right. w- that's waiting. Um, I did an interview with um, Chris for Chris Bailey for the independent wellness summit. In fact, yeah. as we're recording this today, it came out today on productivity. And at the very end of that interview, he says, you know, when you say yes to something, you're you're definitely saying no to something else. Yeah, and being aware that every yes has a no, mm-hmm. and and I think that's one of the things that's really hard about being intentional, even with being intentional with a human being, your child or your spouse, especially if children are running around. When you're saying yes to that person, there's always something that you feel like you're saying no to. Right, and so I wonder what that was like for him to. Um, balance that yeah. or if that really mattered or if that caused problems at all and what you do with that. But I think we can all agree that what Mr. Rogers taught everybody is that people were more important than the clock. So from a faith perspective, he's he was an ordained minister. And as you were saying that, I kept thinking in my mind, from my faith tradition, I believe that the only thing that will live beyond this earth are the souls that are in each other's or that are in our bodies mm. that all, all the rest of this is just going to burn away. It's all just going to be done. Mm. I mean, our money, everything. I mean, at some point in time from my faith tradition, we will be glorified and resurrected bodies. So I'm sitting there going, he actually values the one thing that has eternal mm-hmm. like uh, longevity. Mm-hmm. Like when you, when you, and I'm, we would be, if we had that faith tradition, if you believe that to value something that is eternal over everything else that is going to die away and perish, it's like common sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just the most common sense thing. Mm-hmm. So for people that have a faith in the afterlife to not spend that time is just stupid. Mm-hmm. It, it really is like, it's not believing what you actually believe. It's not practicing what you actually believe. So for him, he's looking at somebody, at a human, at an existence, at a creation that is going to have an eternal existence and going, why would I care about the rest of this stuff? Time is a man-made object. It's a man-made construct. Mm-hmm. And nowadays we build by the hour. We plan by the hour. Everything is by the hour. We are able to quantify like how many, how long people were on our website, Mm -hmm. how long people were doing this and how that translates into dollars. Everything translates into dollars. And then at some point those dollars become valueless Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And as soon as you calculate them. Yeah. As soon as you calculate them. And then all of a sudden you're like, so what is a value? Mm-hmm. And it, it was really beautiful for him to um, portray a life that had a correct valuation of things that are lasting mm-hmm. and um, and what that communicates to another person and what that heals in another person when you do that. To see them. Oh, to be seen. You know, um, by the time this comes out, I just interviewed Sierra, um, a National Guard spouse, and she did such a beautiful job talking about um, how sometimes her and her husband, especially during a deployment when they can't understand each other's worlds. And um, she said something to me that was just a totally new way of thinking that we get so caught up in understanding each other and thinking that that's the way it has to be, that we should understand everything about each other. And she said that one of the things that she and her husband started to do was instead say, I see you. Mm. Because there's some things that I can't understand. And there's some things that maybe you can't understand, but we can acknowledge that each other exists and we can acknowledge that each other is going through something. Mm-hmm. And that what we really want is to just be seen. Mm-hmm. So it was such a powerful way to think of it that way is, is the power. If you guys are hearing like sounds in the background, it is our curious cat Meg who at nine 30 at night is extra curious. Yeah. She's like, why are you humans? Not in bed? <laughs> going back to so, being seen. Here's the thing. It's like, you, you mention it when you talk about sacred spaces in that sometimes trying to pretend like we understand what another person is going through really cheapens their experience it does. because we're not the one going through it. But I believe that our uncomfortability to sit with another person and, and to recognize that there's a gap in understanding. Um, it, it leads us to want to go, well, what could I do to make this feel better? How could I make this less uncomfortable? But it's sitting in that moment of uncomfortability and allowing somebody to go, oh, you're going to sit with me even though it's uncomfortable. And acknowledging that there's this dynamic that's happening, even in silence of two people with two different perspectives, two different experiences and a lack of understanding sitting together in that human interchange in the silence that really bond I, that I, I, that really bonds two people together in a way that you know maybe going through it together doesn't. Mm-hmm. So when I, that's something I've been thinking about a lot. It just it keeps coming up in my conversations or in my sessions with people, or um, it's just kind of one of those themes that that I try to pay attention to when I see that it keeps popping up is. Um, the frustration that so many of our families feel of that lack of understanding and that gap that they might experience because they're, um, there's so many separations we go through yeah. and that, um, and that maybe the older that I'm getting, the more I realize that we don't necessarily have to understand it all, that it's the fact that we get to do life together, um, and that we get to see each other and be vulnerable with each other, um, as we're going through same and different things. Um, so one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, um, let's talk about, um, the movie really opened up what I think is a, is a discussion about, um, the vulnerability and, um, the ability for men even to express their emotions. It really was about Um, not entirely about manhood, but it really did portray a very um, beautiful storyline of manhood. Yeah. 
And so I'm curious as some of your thoughts on that. You know, um, if you haven't gone to one of our marriage retreats, you may not be familiar with. I've got a concept that I believe is true and that men grow up with four crayons. And I don't know if you've mentioned oh, this. Oh, I thought it was five. Has it gone down to four? No, it's only ever been four. Oh, okay. Okay. This is. I wished a fifth one. And maybe. Yeah. Well, that's the difference. I mean, <laughs> between a man and a woman, a woman's like, surely it can't be four. And you're like, oh, it's just four. <laughs> like you are either mad, sad, glad, or anxious. And if you're anxious or sad, it comes across as mad. Mad. Mm-hmm. Because it's a threat, mm-hmm. because it's an unknown. It's something that you can't control. And all of a sudden, really, it just comes down to I'm either happy or I'm mad. Mm-hmm. And um, and we're seeing this with our two teenage boys of, you know, whether or not they're going through hormonal changes or whether mm-hmm. or not they're going through environmental changes. Mm-hmm. You know, anxiety becomes I'm mad and yeah. I'm frustrated because, you know, it's a powerlessness. Mm-hmm. Um, we've done a lot better over over the years um of really allowing men to be become familiar with the way they feel about things um but i still even today notice uh because i'm i'm in a school i'm 42 most of the people in the school are 10 years younger than me um just because in order you know for us to come into the chaplain corps we have we require 10 years of education and experience before we can even apply. So naturally, you know, where I'm at time and grade. Um, and so I'm even watching young 30 somethings really wrestle with how they feel about things and, and how they're going to be able to communicate those things and whether or not that's a good feeling or whether or not they should be open to other men feeling that. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, and almost whether or not these vulnerable feelings can be a place of shame. And I've challenged a lot of them to go, you know what, out of your vulnerability, because they're all moving into leadership positions out of your your ability to tap into your vulnerability into what you're actually feeling will enable you to lead better, but also will enable you to understand much more the people that you are surrounded with, that you're leading, that you're trying to relate to. Um, it's uh, vulnerability for men is incredibly scary um, because you are expected by the world because you feel as though the world expects you to have everything together and that you are always in control always confident, always assured, always know what the next right answer is. And even, you know, on a day-to-day basis, when we're in these briefings and somebody asks a question, I'll watch somebody tap dance for five straight minutes on through anxiety to try and act like they have an answer that for something they don't have an answer for rather than to vulnerably go, I don't know. I didn't study that. I didn't even look at that. And I watched it happen today. Somebody somebody tap danced and then somebody finally was like, I don't know. We didn't look at that. Mm. And I was like, how powerful to go. Yeah. So you can you can sharpshoot me between the eyes because I ain't got an answer for that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, is I don't know. I, you know, I remember it, Brene. Last thing mm-hmm. I'll say, I remember Brene Brown saying But when the man came up to her and said, you've been studying vulnerability for women, he he goes, how convenient. Mm -hmm. And she was like, what do you mean? He goes, because my wife and daughters would rather me die on top of the horse than to watch me fall off. Mm -hmm. 
And that vulnerability, uh, it affects our relationships definitely at work, but so much at home, so much with our spouse, so much in the bedroom, so much in the boardroom, Mm -hmm. the ability to say, I I don't know. And and you know what? I, I could be wrong and I'm scared or I'm anxious about that. And I'm kind of mad. And, you know, it's, um, well, and yeah. I told someone today, is that what you're looking at? Yeah. 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 Right. No. Um, I told someone today that I feel like society, um, makes it more permissible, uh, for women to express their million, you know, lots of emotions. We say, you know, men have four crayons and women have a box of 64 crayons with a sharpener in the back. I think it's this. I think women are okay to be sad and men are okay to be mad, but it's not the reverse. Once a woman becomes mad, we're all of a sudden nobody knows what to do once a female becomes mad. And once a man becomes sad, like if, if a, if a woman started getting incredibly angry or a mad, a man started like tearing up and get it, everybody would go, Oh no, we don't know what to do. But a woman can be sad at any point in time and you'll go, Oh, it's, a, it's just okay. Or, or mad, a man, man can get angry. Oh, exactly. A man can get angry and he's not, a, you know, you know, earmuffs. A woman gets mad and she's automatically a bitch. And I'm like, but why? Yeah. She may have a great, perfect reason for getting angry. And it, it could we be. We always look crazy when we're angry. Yeah. Well, I, but no, it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't way. be that way. It shouldn't be that way. But all of a sudden, a female gets angry and you're people are like, I don't know how to handle this. Yeah. And you're like, what? That's a human with an emotion. Yeah. Let's acknowledge that there's something bringing that emotion up in a, in a person. And going back to Fred Rogers, that's what he was about. He was about what's a healthy expression for an emotion. Mm-hmm. And uh, to know that for him to have the self-awareness and the situational awareness that emotions are driving all of our behavior and that we need to find healthy ways to feel it and to deal with it. And to express it, it wasn't like, oh, it's not really okay to be angry or it's okay to be angry, but, you know, don't do anything with it. But it was like, it's okay to be angry. And here's a healthy way to express that. Well, one of the things that was surprising to me that I know that I don't think the documentary had covered was really asking Miss Fred Rogers how he dealt with his own emotions. Oh, yeah. And for his wife to talk about how he actually has or had a temper and and what he does every day in order to cope with that. Yeah. You know, um, which I think was also powerful because she even said, you know, if we call him a saint, nobody can live up to that. He's not human anymore. Yeah. And for him to do these things like reading scripture, going swimming, Mm -hmm. praying for people, writing letters. Yeah. He had found very specific coping skills and was disciplined enough to do them. I'm assuming every day, but at least knowing himself enough that these were the things that he had to do in order to manage those feelings and still embrace them. Right. And to be so holistic, because she said, He swims every day. He prays for people by name every day. And just those two things alone are like, you have to acknowledge that there's a certain amount of energy in your body when you feel anxious or mad. And you've got to be able to get that energy out. You may not be able to talk about it. You may not be able to think about it. You just kind of got to get that energy out. So Mm -hmm. swimming. Mm -hmm. But then the ability to pray for people by name every day. And 
it gives you pause to think and consider another person and what they might be struggling with, mm-hmm. what they might be dealing with, to see somebody as a person that is trying to overcome their past, that is trying to deal with their present, and that may be struggling with anxiety over their future. I mean, give them all the same grace that you would want for yourself. And it's easy to say like right now, but it's so hard to do in that moment Mm -hmm. to pause, to reflect, to be patient and to in, in through a process to give them that grace. And what you saw with his pausing and slowing down through the whole process, I could imagine in his head, he's sitting there playing out this narrative of this person in such a manner that it gives him the grace to be able to react to them in a very gentle and kind way. As if, you know, Ben Harper has this great, great song um, called Better Way. And it says, reality is sharp. It cuts at me like a knife. Everyone I know is in the fight of their life. And I believe in a better way. And if we look at one another as another human that is in the fight of their life, like in this moment, maybe struggling between life and death, I believe we can actually find the the space in our calendar, in our heart, and in our mind to sit with them long enough for that to pass. Well, and let's also talk about the fact that um, some of you might be listening, thinking, you know, if I were to actually slow myself down and pause before I actually said something and thought about what I wanted to say to another human being, that moment would pass because the world moves so fast. Yeah. And the reality is, is that kind of like in watching the movie, it if that pause forces the other person to pause. Yeah. I mean, sure, there's going to be moments with your kids where they're just, you know, you paused and they took off. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, there's a lot of people that we're going to come across in life that look to you for a response because they need a response in the world. They need somebody in the world to answer that pain or to to give them permission to have that pain or to give an opinion on it. Or and so people hang on each other's um, responses. Yeah. And so when you give that pause, I think you'll find that people will hang around long enough to hear that truth yeah. that you have. We have a saying, well, I heard it first in the artillery and it makes sense because of the many things that they have to do in order to put a round into a gun. And it's this intricate dance of six individuals making a round go down range. It's be- it's a beautiful dance and everybody has to play their part perfectly. And it says, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Mm-hmm. Slow is smooth. It's kind of like make haste slowly. Smooth. Make haste slowly. My grandfather used to tell my father, son, make haste slowly. Mm-hmm. Slow is smooth. Smooth is fast. And I wonder just how much we sabotage our own time by trying to answer quickly with a uh, like a 10 or 15% answer because we feel uncomfortable in the moment. Don't know or what to say. Or with the silence. Or with the silence. Or we're trying to make the moment pass quickly. And in all of that, we end up really commoting, and I love that phrase, we end up commoting the moment. We end up like clogging it up. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, now we have more problems to deal with of our own creation rather than sit in the silence, thoughtfully consider, and then kind of move forward. And then I think if we actually begin to really train ourselves to think slowly, to react slowly, we'll actually become more effective 
through the process. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, we've got a little saying on the back of the wall in, uh, in our staff group, and it talks about, you know, be considerate before you talk. And uh, one of the things is like, is what I'm about to say, does it benefit the class or is it just processing my own anxiety? Mm. It says something like that. I have to take a picture of it and take it. But it's very much like consider what you're about to say. Is it for the class or is it for yourself? Mm -hmm. Is it for the person in front of you or is it for your or is it to address the, the, feeling, the psychological discomfort that discomfort you have. Discomforting that you're in. Or can that psychological discomfort, you only learn this after years of counseling, mm -hmm. the benefit of psychological discomfort yeah. as, an, as an impetus to make people move forward. Acknowledging that you are that you might be struggling with something gives per, other people permission yeah. to, to experience that or express it as well. Right, yeah. right. Like when he said, you know, and I'm going to butcher this. But he said, you know, a lot of people are uncomfortable about talking about death, but death is a very human uh, experience. And because it's human, it's mentionable. And if it's mentionable, it's manageable. Are you hearing something today that's really hitting home? Take your personal growth to the next level by joining the Life Giver Facebook group. Simply head over to the Facebook page, Corey Weathers slash Life Giver, and join the group with other service couples for support and deeper discussions on each episode. Want even more? Subscribe to the Life Giver newsletter for practical tips from each episode and exclusive discounts on sessions with Corey. Which is what I was actually going to ask you next is that um, surprisingly and not surprisingly, this movie um, addresses death um, and grieving and that process. And you would be able to address this probably better than I could. But um, such a beautiful quote that mm -hmm. you just quoted. Yeah. Um, so let's unpack that just a little bit. Ooh. I mean... Grief and death and dying is is such a difficult thing to talk about for so many people and for me for so long. Um, definitely something that I was afraid of, not necessarily afraid of my own death, but afraid of the grief and being overwhelmed by that grief. Um, specifically, I knew that my grandfather was going to pass away and, and I knew that was going to be one of my first real opportunities to grieve somebody that I really loved. Yeah. Um, that was a Fred Rogers type of man, mm -hmm. um, in my life. And so I know that I had so much anxiety, um, leading up to that grief and, and you were an amazing person that helped me embrace that grief. Um, the amazing timing of having been through a deployment, I believe mm -hmm. before my grandfather had, had passed away in that you taught me in experiencing a lot of grief and death and dying yourself, mm -hmm. especially during the deployment, really taught me that um, we only grieve because we love big. Oh yeah. And and once I embraced that, it was ex that idea of grieving was going to be so excruciating, but it was only excruciating and overwhelming to me because I loved big. Um, has drastically shifted my perspective of grief. Mm -hmm. Um, and allowed me to really 
embrace what might be scary and overwhelming because we love so big. You know, on Friday, we went to the oldest steakhouse in Mm -hmm. Kansas City. And it was an incredible steak. It was phenomenal. And it reminded me of going to Diamondbacks. Which is where we worked worked shortly after we married. When you have a really good steak, that first bite, you just savor it. And like sensory, the sensory experience is just beautiful. It's indescribable because I love steak. Like a filet steak. Like a filet steak. Grief should get you so in touch with your experience phenomenologically as a human. It should be like the first bite of a steak because you are fully aware of how much you feel and love and experience and all the flood of joy and life that should all just be bottled up in that one moment mm-hmm. that you get to sit in in the pain and the joy that everything that you can possibly feel as a human is there when you are experiencing the loss and the grief of a loved one and what a sacred moment for you that no one else They'll have their own, but no one else gets to experience that one fullness of life in that in those moments. What a treasure. And every time it it visits you, it's like a tiny little treasure. You get to sit in it, experience in it, cry, laugh, weep, uh, just in awe that you are allowed to experience the fullness in that moment, there's nothing more precious to affirm that death gives life meaning. Mm-hmm. And from then, it, it's it's like this, it's like this little catalyst. It's like this little battery that, if you if you allow it, can recharge you to then go forward and to create more of those things for yourself and with others. It's almost like you're giving a gift forward Mm -hmm. so that if you, if they have to grieve you, they have a gift. They have all those gifts. Mm -hmm. It's like you're putting little treasures in their treasure box Mm -hmm. so that they get to celebrate and enjoy. And for the, for my faith tradition, that's just like the end of chapter one. Mm -hmm. And then when chapter two starts, it never stops. The celebration. The celebration, the joy. Jack asked me the other day when we were in church, he was like, what is heaven? And I said, imagine a perfect earth where you get to just enjoy life without sorrow, without pain, without anger. And you never feel like you're ever going to lose the people that you love the absolute most. Mm-hmm. And you're never worried and you're never anxious and you never have to wake up whenever you have to. You never have to go anywhere at the exact certain point of time. But then again, you're never really tired, so you don't have to sleep. Mm-hmm. And he was like, that sounds wonderful. And I was like, and that was how it's always supposed to be, Jack. Mm-hmm. When you use the word celebration. Yeah. And to me, that is 
what that grief has become is waves of celebration. Yeah. And like you said, it gives you more reasons to go and celebrate life more and love more so that you can celebrate again. Yeah. And, um, and so going back to this quote that was, I think so powerful for both of us. I mean, there were so many moments that were powerful, but, Mm -hmm. um, to go back to what he talked about with grief is that it's a human experience that we have to learn to talk about. Right. And and everybody's so afraid to talk about it as if um, it's not going to happen or it's going to make somebody feel bad yeah. um, that, that they're going to die someday. And yet it's something we have to learn to talk about. You'll never live in the, if you keep running from it. Yeah. The only people that I've ever seen that actually really appreciate life and live it to the fullest are the ones that have brushed up against death, that fully know what the end looks like. They know that like it is a literal thing Mm -hmm. for everybody else. It's a concept that they just brush off and they're just trying to, you know, for whatever reason, they are trying to run from their own mortality. But the ones that believe like, hey. When it's your time, it's your time. My old sergeant major, Rob Wilson, used to. We used to look at one another, and go, "Hey, when it's your time, it's your time." I don't care if you're here in Afghanistan or in Colorado Springs, man. When it's your time, it's your time. When it's your time, it's your time. You don't get a do-over. You don't get a. Oh, I want to go back and do that. Oh, I forgot about that. Oh, there's this other thing. Oh no, those of us that know that full well, we should be living with a schwad of Eve, if you will, <laughs> of. Of going, you know what, I'm going to, and you can't seize every moment because there there are mundane things in life we have to attend to. But for those things that we can enjoy, we should enjoy legally, ethically, and morally to the fullest Mm -hmm. and really experience those moments. Because I believe that's when God is happiest. Because it's an actual honoring. It's like you gave me life in this moment, full tilt boogie. I am going to do it and I'm going to enjoy it. Well, and I think that for, and I'm going to be stereotypical here, but I think for a lot of um, supporting spouses at home, so much of our life is about um, keeping life alive, (laughs) children and plants and animals and all kinds of things. And I think that's part of the divide. I think for, you know, not every service member has experienced um, difficult deployments or, um, even lost those close to them. Like mm-hmm. that's not been the experience of every service member. And right. so I know we're being stereotypical in that, but um, I will say well, that I don't, the well, service members. Pause. I want to pause. Maybe not. There are service members listening to this, but there are also first responders. Absolutely. And I can guarantee you they all have. Absolutely. Yeah. So I just wanted to make that point that I know we're saying service members, but as the son and grandson of police officers. Um, the reason I do what I do is because I saw the change. I saw what my dad had to deal with and I wanted somebody to be able to stand with them. So I just want to say that, give a shout out to my boys in blue and ladies in blue as well. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, and what I was going to say is that the the service culture, even if you haven't experienced it, you right. you are, I think, more so prepared yeah. to experience it. You know, that's potentially part of the experience and yeah. that you could experience it. And and it's I think maybe my guess, my assumption is that there's um, 
you anticipate the possibility of it and you might be more prepared for it. And yeah. I think for the stereotypical supporting spouse at home, it's not part of our world unless you are dual service. Mm-hmm. Um, stereotypically, again, um, there's so many of you listening. I know who've been through intense grief and loss and and that right. may, may not be for you, but there's a lot that um, have not experienced that to the point that when we talk about care team trainings, we talk about what are we going to, you know, what, what are you going to do? And do you know what your benefits are? And if something were to happen to your serving spouse, you know, what would you do and what kind of support do you have? And we have so many spouses that run from that. Yeah. That run from um, getting the information that they need in order to process it. And so I, you know, there's a huge difference there of, you know, going back to what I wrote in the book that for a lot of service members, they come home with this carpe diem, live yeah. life to the fullest because life ends. And then you've got so many of us at home that aren't, aren't around that very often. Right. And it's more like, I need to just get through today. Right. Um, I can't. And then you put your head on the pillow and all the, all of your worst fears go through your mind of loss, you know, and then we don't deal with it. Well, what do you do? And, and here's the thing. It's like, so after that worst fear, I mean, because service members do that law enforcement, we all, we all, we all on a regular basis deal with that in our head. But the next thing is like, so what are you going to do about it? It's almost like mm-hmm. you can have that fear. Great. Everybody does that. But if you stop at that and then try and rein everything in to try and bring all the safety in and try and have some sort of control, which is an illusion mm-hmm. over your life, you are just going to be that much more anxious because you're not going to because you got to realize you don't have that control. It, have that. In my, think about it. Think through it. I know do something like positive and productive with it. I to bring that kind of together. What's worked for me. And this is partly some of the things that you said, but also um, what I learned from Brene Brown (laughs) was um, because that's my thing. Like I put my head on, I used to put my head on the pillow and worst nightmare things involving the kids would go through my head. And I put my head on the pillow and I'm asleep. You are. (laughs) (laughs) It's not fair. It's not fair. But for me, I had to apply some of this. I had had to immediately switch my mind to the only reason why I'm fearing this is because I love them so big. Yeah. And then I would focus my mind on how much I love each of them and what right. I love about each of them and celebrating that. Yeah. And, and it really did help um, stop that anxiety and that fear by just really camping out in the yeah. relationship and in the mindfulness of that relationship. And so it really does go back to that quote from the movie where he's talking about this is all stuff that's mentionable. Yes. We have to bring words to that. It's okay even in your marriage to talk about what would I do if something happened to you? What would you want me to do if something happened to you? Or maybe it is the fear of, of losing a parent or a grandparent or something like that. It is about talking to perhaps a, I mean, we know several gold star families, whether it's a gold star mom, a gold star wife that would love to talk about what it was like for them to go through that process of loss and, and be allowed to mention it Mm -hmm. without somebody saying, Ooh, that's a dark topic. Yeah. Right. And so there's so many of them that have gone on to love and celebrate and have joy again and want to share that too. Yeah. And so for him talking about how it's something that's mentionable and those things that are mentionable are also manageable. Yeah. If it's mentionable, it's manageable. I go back to that 
song that we every time we hear it, we both kind of like go to our own little separate corners and try not to cry in the living years where it says I wasn't there. I can't even I can't even say the song it says I wasn't there that morning when my father passed away and I didn't get to tell him all the things I had to say. Mm. And in those moments where your head's on the pillow or you're thinking something where you feel like it's unmentionable, challenge yourself, push through it and then go, what would I want to say? How would I want to act? It's like Benjamin Zander. It was like live as though when he told he tells a story about a brother and sister who were on the train to Auschwitz and the sister looked at her brother and and they were on the train and they were on the way to Auschwitz. And she looked down and she saw that her brother didn't have shoes on and she just scolded in the way that an older sister would be like, how could you be so stupid? You don't have your shoes on. And then after they got on the train, she never saw her brother again. And he goes, I just wonder, she goes, I just regretted. That was the last thing I ever said to my brother. And you know, he said, we, we can't always live as though everything, every word is going to stand as our last word. But what if we tried to live into that reality? Mm-hmm. And I look at the, the life that was represented on Fred Rogers and the, the silence and the care with which he tried to choose every word mm-hmm. and everything he had to say. And. It really expressed a value of the person and of the relationship that that maybe these could be the last words that could stand between two people. And what would that mean? Now, we can't live in that reality, like Xander says. You can't live in that reality all the time. But what if you tried to live into that reality, that people knew where you stood and they knew how you felt, and that even when there were arguments that you could disagree and yet still acknowledge, hey, you know, this is what I'm struggling with. I just need you to be graceful and patient with me as I'm trying to figure this out for myself. Can Speaking of um, arguments. Like all we argued today. <laughs> we did argue a lot today, didn't we? <laughs> it was a rough day. Maybe yeah. that's why we were so emotional yeah. and why we put the kids we better early. <laughs> no, but, you know. He also, there was this beautiful moment where um, Lloyd kind of snaps at him. Yeah. And um, I I won't give away exactly what he says, but he kind of snaps at Fred and Fred just looks at him and kind of takes a deep breath, pauses again and just goes, thank you for that perspective. And it's like, oh man, that's so hard to do when somebody has said something either hurtful, even if it's something you don't believe or even if it's true, yeah. Um, to have that mirror held up to you and to take that deep breath. And instead of being defensive, which he he could have very easily been defensive right. in that moment, um, for him to go, you know, thank you for that perspective. Yeah. You know, maybe it was right. Well, he looked at him at one point and he said, it must be a burden to be, you know, uh, it must have been a heavy burden, I think. Is he that what he goes, about? no, he says, he goes, um, it must have been really difficult for your children to, to have you as a father. Yeah. Well, the, that, there was that, but I was talking about a different time when he looked and he looked at me, he goes, it must have been a heavy burden on your family, I guess, for it to be Fred Rogers. He goes, thank you so much for your compassion. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> which it takes you a second to think through because you're like. Oh my gosh. Was normal, he being compassionate? The normal person would be like, oh, it wasn't a burden. It's totally fine. Or it was a burden. And oh, da, da. But what Fred did was like to look at him and go, to acknowledge 
The only way you can acknowledge that this is a burden in someone's life is if you feel compassion. It takes a special measure of emotional intelligence to not respond to what someone is saying, Mm -hmm. but to what is causing them to speak. And those are two different things. That's so hard. It's amazingly hard. And it requires patience. It requires intuition. And for it to not be an assumption. But right. maybe but maybe the root of assumptions is really the deep desire to want to understand and to right. know. Yeah. We're so busy trying to get things accomplished and we end up not accomplishing much of anything. Mm-hmm. It's true. <laughs> it's very true. I so to kind of close up because it's late. And uh it's only 52 minutes in. I mean, we're I know it'll be a good really solid hour. Started. I know. I mean, they can come back for part for the, 2. Part 2. Late late night. The, la- the, the late, late late night with a life giver. Late late night with life giver. <laughs> <laughs> what was I'll share mine. Uh, but what was your I guess takeaway or your, um, what'd you walk away with from the movie? Cause I, I have a feeling that movie hits different people in different ways. So in order to do the interview, Fred Rogers read all of Lloyd Vogel's articles, which apparently were very caustic and possibly bitter and probably pretty pessimistic. And it reminds me of like the quote, and you'll know the quote about always look for the helpers. The there Mr. Are, Rogers quote. Yeah. Yeah. If you really want to make a difference, go where people are hurting and don't run from it because of your own uncomfortability. Acknowledging that people are hurting all around you and you really only need to walk next door to find somebody that's actually hurting. Mm-hmm. And Honestly, your neighbor only needs to walk next door to find somebody that's actually hurting too. Mm. But that he didn't shy away from what could have been a difficult case, but he considered another human his mission. And he knew what he was on earth for. I'm absolutely positive Fred Rogers knew what he was on earth for. But he also, when he looked at... When he looked at Lloyd, uh, the reporter, he didn't look at another adult as if I'm going to relate to an adult. He looked at someone that was still struggling with their childhood. Mm-hmm. And there are so many things that all of us are still struggling with our childhood. And it's easy to get pissed off at an adult. Adults can be difficult or children can be difficult at times, too. But if you look at a kid that's trying to understand the world around him and just can't contextualize it or can't create some sort of schema for understanding why things are happening or what's going on or to find purpose in it, if you look at a child that's really just confused, you can't help but feel a bit of sympathy and a bit of compassion for them. And so seeing in every adult this is a part of them that is still scared and anxious and fearful and unknowing with a bit of trepidation and anxiety, I think can be compassion inducing 
in any one of us. And so when I saw what, what I saw his response was to, to Lloyd was, was very much that this, this idea of I'm going to see through everything else, the rough that, exterior, the rough exterior, I'm going to see through to go, you know, where, where was the first hurt and how did your inability to talk about it create the person that sits in front of me right now? I think for me, um, it definitely reminded me to be more patient with our kids. Yeah. For sure. Um, there's a beautiful song about accepting them as they are. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things that at least one of our kids are craving right now Yeah, is to, as they're figuring out who they are to be yeah. accepted as they and are. And the difficult part is that honestly, we work really hard at that. Yeah. And it's how do you get a kid to believe that? Especially when the world is already telling him something different. Oh that's God, the world is just mean. Could, if you Could are listening to this <laughs> and you are just making mean kids, you are making the world worse. <laughs> like if you don't do anything, I don't care if you're a schmuck at work, but if you are making good kids, you are a okay in my book and tell your boss I said that. <laughs> I, going back to me. Yeah, back to you. <laughs> no, um, I think oh, there was so much that I'm going to have to be, I'm going to have to buy the movie, number one. It might be my new favorite movie. Right. Because um, it's a Corey movie. Right. Like, oh my goodness, if there was ever a Corey movie, And that if anybody is it. out there listening in TV land has a way that Corey can interview Tom Hanks for the podcast. Oh, man. You are a gem. I know for a fact that Barbara Vanda Halen at Given Hour yep. has worked with Tom Hanks. So anybody give me those Barbara, connections. I will buy you a blizzard, a large one. A large blizzard. At the local Dairy Queen. No, but I, I think um, one of the many things that stood out to me was him asking, you know, who are the people in your life that made you who you are? <sighs> oh, God. Oh. And. Oh, man, you talk about. Oh. Uh, and I think um, it was a reminder to me of, of just a flooding of people that came to my mind. And that really goes to the brilliance of of who not only scripted this movie, but wrote it and filmed it. And it was just beautifully done. Yeah. Um, but it really is surprising the number of people that come to your mind that have made you who you are, who've made me who I am. Yeah. Whether they were memories filled with joy or memories of pain. Yeah. That the idea that, that no matter loved you, the phrase was, yeah. Think about who loved you into being. Yeah. And that, that, but, but I think the point was, yeah. is that the people that love you are not perfect people. Right. And that you are only who you are, um, because of the experiences and the people. Mm hmm that you have had in your life mm -hmm. and what a beautiful moment. And what, a, like going back to that celebration, what a beautiful gift, because there were several people that came to my mind were people that have passed away yeah. that I was able to celebrate <clears throat> those relationships because they, they were a part in making me who I am. Yeah. And you have to sit in that pocket of grief and celebration um, and reflecting on those relationships because you wouldn't be who you are today. 
Um, you wouldn't love as big as you love or, or have the, the things that you're passionate about had those people not have been part of your story. So who? Oh, you say man. one and then I'm going to go back, back and forth. Not in any particular order. I mean, no. obviously my parents, my mom and my dad, but um, one of the big ones that came to mind was my stepdad who passed away a couple mm. years ago. How about for you? Yeah. Say his name. Ron. Ron. They call him Pops. Uh, um, for me, uh, Milford. Milford. Yes. I've heard stories of Milford. that I worked for. My grandfather, especially. Yeah. Was my Fred Rogers, just a sweet, godly man. Mm -hmm. Frida Cole, who is my first minister mentor, who just has the sweetest, most wonderful spirit. Likewise, Kathy Harper Mm -hmm. was mine. She loved all the kids in the youth group, and she was like our mom of the youth group. Randy Kirby was my first youth choir director and taught me how to worship God. Leslie Milligan, mm-hmm. um, my one of my first supervisors, but also my friend who taught me to pray, really, mm-hmm. who has um, who taught me how to kind of tear down the walls of even my relationship with God. Yeah. So H- one more. H.S. Yarborough and Linda Yarborough, who are my second ministers of music who did that. And I, I'm going to throw, I'm not going to do one more. I'm going to keep going. Um, uh, Dr. Cullinan. Oh, Alice. For Cullinan. both of us. Um, Michael Blackwell. Um, my first best friend in life. But what was it about him? (laughs) Oh my gosh. Um, he showed up right when you needed him, didn't he? He did. He showed up. Uh, he showed up at a time where um, I was struggling with my hip, and um, you had to learn to walk again. Um, he used to drive me to uh, to and from football practice all the time with him, and um, we'd hang out every Saturday and we'd watch college football. And he got me into Jimi Hendrix and Stevie Ray Vaughan and Steve Vai and Joe Satriani. Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin, all the biggies. I remember going and sitting in his room and just uh, just listening to music and just hanging out. I mean, uh, he taught me what it was to be a good friend. He was actually the one that taught me, uh, talked me into becoming a chaplain. So you should blame him every time you hate being He's in, out now. Every, yeah, he got out every time you hate being in the Army. But, uh, man, I tell you what. Um, yeah. But, you know, talk about feeling seen by somebody. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That um, you went through a lot of um, hurt and pain and bullying. Yeah. And for someone to see past the leg braces that you wore, the surgery that you wore, or even the things that people said you couldn't do. Yeah. And to see you and see you as valuable um, to, to spend that time with you and to really yeah. mentor you into such a really good place. Yeah. It was a beautiful thing. I used to climb the 
He had like an eight foot tall chain link fence and he used to climb that and hop over there and go hang out every day. It's probably actually only four feet. No, it was legitimate <laughs> eight feet because I had to hop on a four foot one in order to get over the eight foot one. I remember that specifically. That was actually only two feet. <laughs> Just that was kidding. Not two feet. Nobody makes a two foot chain link fence. No, I know. Oh Everything's big when you're yeah. a kid. No, I um, listen, I love you and I um I appreciate the vulnerability and the emotion that you share. Yeah. And I'm so glad that we've learned a lot in 20 years and there's so much more yet for us to learn. And on a late night life giver, yeah. right. Um, it is Keep a good way. Life <laughs> it's a good way to end a really rough day Yeah, is was. to um, have a mentor teach us how to communicate our own feelings mm -hmm. and love through it. Yeah. So thank you for doing this with me. You're welcome. I love you. Thanks for doing it with me. So night night, everybody. Love you guys. Uh, take care of one another. Be nice. Uh, when it's all said and done, that's what you'll be remembered for. Peace. Thank you for listening to the Life Giver Podcast. If you're enjoying these episodes, please share the podcast with other service couples that may benefit from the show. If you're feeling especially grateful, head on over to patreon.com forward slash life giver or find the link in today's show notes where for just a couple of dollars, you can help breathe life into more service families. If you'd like more information about me or Life Giver, head on over to coreyweathers.com or life-giver.org.